morning, everyone. Like many things in life, our reputations can be a good thing, can't they? To have a name that speaks well of us, um, to, to have a positive image that communicates to the people around us what we are and what we stand for can be a really good thing. But a good reputation, a, a good name, a good image can become an idol like anything else. One of the core truths of the Bible is that it teaches us that even good things can be corrupted into bad things. And what, what makes this corruption so hard to detect is because these things are good, it's a lot easier to, to justify or to de deny or to ignore, or more often the case, not even be aware that these good things are becoming bad things, that these good things are actually becoming corrupted in us and corrupting us as well. Our reputation, our image is one of those things. Having a good name or a good image is a good thing, but like any good thing, a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. When your name, when your reputation, when your image becomes more important than the fact that it actually does or does not represent who you actually are, life can become an exhausting pursuit of an ever-receding horizon because you are constantly chasing something you no longer are. In doing a lot of counseling as I do, I have found most people in this situation are not even aware that they are on this emotional treadmill. It's sad when this happens to a person. It's ha sad when this happens to a people. It's sad when this happens to organizations. And the church is no different. It happened to the church of Sardis, and we know it can happen today. If we're not careful, it can happen here at Christ Community Church. So in studying Sardis this morning, the church that rested on its reputation, we're going to ask a question and learn a couple things. Is, the, the question is, is reputation more important than reality? And I hope you all can understand the answer for that is clearly no. And we're going to learn that repentance, biblical repentance, is actually the key to getting in touch with reality. And then finally we'll end by looking at the joys of reality. So we'll look at them one at a time. Let's answer, answer the first question. Do we want a reputation or do we actually want things to be reality? And as always, Jesus, his insight into the church is spot on. And two themes that weave itself through these six verses come out clearly. Number one... The concept of a reputation, the word is actually used there, but also this, this concept of reputation, your image, your name, it appears four times in these six verses. We see that there in verse 1, uh, verse 4, and twice in verse 5. Secondly, what's weaving through this is the phrase, wake up. Those two themes are spot on to the need of the church at Sardis, and I suspect those two themes are probably spot on to today's church as well. Like Pergamum, the city we studied a few weeks ago, Sardis was located upon the crest of a mountain range, and really because of that, there was only one way into the city, and that was through the south. The way the city sat, whether you, if you came from the north, the east, or the west, before you could even get over the city walls, you would have to scale a 1,500-foot sheer cliff to get to the city. That's even before you got to the city walls, which were themselves fortified. So you can understand a city situated like that with its natural fortifications was almost uh, uh, impenetrable. 
And from the outside, that clearly was the case. Not only was this an an impregnable city on a mountain range, it was also really rich. Gold literally flowed through the nearby rivers. As a matter of fact, as best we can understand, in ancient civilization, Sardis was one of the first regions that gold coins were actually minted. So we're talking about a powerful and wealthy city. But as history would play itself out, when Rome became the ancient superpower of the world and put its provincial seat of power in the city of Pergamum and had its eyes on cities like Smyrna or Ephesus, cities like Sardis lost its sparkle. And with the passage of time, it no longer once was the the, the crown jewel of the region. Sardis became kind of like a a Detroit of the early 2000s or Pittsburgh after steel manufacturing went overseas, long past its zenith, only living on the momentum of its past. Now, at this point when the book of Revelation is written, the city was still thriving, but it was thriving on their reputation, not necessarily on the current reality. Power was shifting, wealth was moving and leaving Sardis behind. Sardis was the city that used to be something. Everyone knew it, but nobody in the city really wanted to talk about it. And after a massive earthquake in the first century AD that leveled much of the city, and after losing a bid to the Roman to, to host the second kind of uh, emperor cult, uh, they lost that bid. Sardis at that point was done in terms of economic power, cultural influence. It was just a matter of time before the city itself would disappear. So the accusation we get here in Revelation 3 of having this reputation of being alive, but in reality being dead, was really like addressing the elephant in the room for them. Just like the command to wake up. You see, because even though Sardis was an impregnable fortress, it was almost impossible to get in, twice in their long history, people invaded and took over Sardis. And in each case, it was because of the neglect, either of the night's guards from falling asleep or failing to be watchful. Wake up also can be translated watchful. You see, in 546 B.C. and 214 B.C., both times the night's guard were either asleep or they realized they were so strong on the north side they didn't need to defend it. Two armies, the Greeks were one of them, found a back entrance. It was a rather large entrance, but given the size of the city, it was rather insignificant, and they left it unguarded. And in two cases, a team, a small group of men, got into the city, overtook the leadership, and took control of the entire city of Sardis in mere hours. So Jesus' commanded them, two object lessons, the city and the church would have been very aware of that reputation is not the same thing as reality, and being watchful or watchlessness leads to tragic results. In verse 1, Jesus says to them, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Now, to be clear, again, I don't don't want to paint the picture. If you're thinking of Detroit, I don't want you to have Detroit in your mind now. It was still a thriving city by all accounts. Even the church here was thriving. We call it a happening church by any of our metrics today. They were probably doing great. They had good programs, good events, lots of Bible studies. It was a happening church. But Jesus says, this is all window dressing. I know what's going on behind all of the hype. They were no longer alive. Notice what he says to them. You have works. I know your works. But your works are incomplete in the sight of my God. 
You may look alive, but in fact of the matter is you're actually dead. One of the other biblical truths we see in Scripture is that there is a big difference between living and merely existing. That's something really important to think about. There is a difference between living and merely existing. You might have a good life. You might have the things of this world. You might have a fat 401k. You might have well-behaved kids. You might have great vacations every year. You might have all those things, but that doesn't, it doesn't follow from that that you are actually living. If you are not living with eternal purpose in mind, if you are not making investments in that eternal bank account, you're actually not living. You're just existing. If I could use an illustration, um, technically, biologically, a plant is a lot, well, this one's not alive at all. I mean, well, sorry, did you know that? Okay. Um, <laughs> you could tell, right? You could tell. I mean, so I'm not even going to bother with that since the gig is up. Uh, technically, biologically, a plant is alive. But you can't relate to it. You can't communicate with it. In comparison to our understanding of life, in orders of magnitude, it's not living. It just exists. There is a difference between being alive and existing. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. C.S. Lewis, the famous novelist and, and, and theologian, philosopher, and professor, says this, if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Yet so often, people keep going back to satisfy those desires with the things of this world that can never truly fulfill them. And the Christians at Sardis, maybe like Christians today, were satisfying them with things that weren't really meant to give life. We might say they, they might have been satisfying themselves with church life, Bible studies to go to, family-friendly events, lots of events things to improve their lives, but not necessarily pressing into the abundant life that Christ said he came to give, sacrificial service, pursuing holiness, living for the glory of God, and eternal things. The two were not the same. The two were not the same. They can be, but don't assume that they are. You know, this week as I was... Um, preparing for this sermon, doing some reading, other parts of the Gospels, I came again to, uh, you can turn there, keep your finger in Revelation if you want, and turn to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about the end of all things, and I thought that was an appropriate section to read as we're studying Revelation, and I came again across chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, a really frightening section of Scripture. This is what Jesus says. Speaking of, of, of the last things, he says, verse 21 of chapter 7 in Matthew's gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now, now let's translate that to our modern times. We may not say those things, but we would say, Lord, Lord, did, was I not faithful at the building program? Didn't I not contribute much to the church? Wasn't I part of Harvest Crusade? Lord, Lord, I did these things. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in just reading this, by the way, I'm not saying that the Harvest Crusade, you, you guys get what I'm saying. I'm trying to translate this to modern times. 
This is a frightening passage of scripture because the individuals there on that day are talking to the Lord and they're genuinely convinced, you, you know me. I, I, when I show up, you should open the gates and say, hey, come on in. And the Lord says, I don't know who you are. So when we look at that and what's going on at Sardis, that they have this reputation of being alive, everyone says, hey, that's a, that, you want a church? That, check out that church, it's happening over there. And Jesus says, no, you're dead. The question we have to ask is, how does this happen? How does this happen? Because both in Sardis and here in Matthew 7, the people believe they're doing okay. It's a frightening thought. And another passage, you can, you can turn there if you want, or uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Tim, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me flip there over as well. When John is writing to his young protege, we actually studied this together as a church a little while ago, 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to what Paul writes, but understand this, and he's speaking of the last days, by the way, the last days is not just the end of the world, you should know that the last days is pretty much after the inauguration of Jesus' resurrection, so we've been in the last days, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you're thinking, that's right, that's the world we live in, how horrible this world is. But then look at verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. Paul's talking about people we would see in the church. He's not talking about the world. He could be including the world, but he says that they're having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So here we go. Look at that. We're looking at three sections of scripture. Revelation chapter 3, where they think they're alive. Jesus says, you're dead. Matthew chapter 7, you should let me in. I don't even know you. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. It's It's not operative in them. How does this happen? I mean, there's a lot of ways we can, we can explain that, but let me just give you two, two ways I think this actually can happen, uh, and, and that is through either one, there's a, a sense of legalism in the church, and secondly, uh, dualism in the church. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Legalism, the, the engine behind legalism is that I do certain things that demonstrate my worth, right? I, I do certain things that establish my name. So verse one, I have a name. Verse four, I have works. Verse, uh, verse three, works. Verse four, I, I have worthiness. I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm involved. I contribute. And because I do these things, I'm worthy, Right? That, that, that's a spirit of legalism. But friends, that, that's not living. That's not living. And, and here's how we can prove it. When things don't go well, when you don't get what you want from God, when life doesn't go your way, what happens? And fill in the blank however that looks. I should be married and I'm not. I'm married but I'm not happy. My retirement years are not the golden years they were promised. My family didn't turn out the way I want. My kids went sideways. Fill in the blank. There's a thousand ways that we can face disappointment and struggle in life. But what happens when you face those? Do you get angry with God? Do you get bitter with God? Does your prayer life just go in the toilet because you didn't get what you wanted? See, what Jesus is saying here is that you're not following me because you love me. You think I owe you because you're a good person. 
So when we don't get what we want, we get mad at God. It's revealing the reality that we're not loving God because of who he is. We're loving God because we think he owes us for doing the right thing. That's legalism. I do these things so that I'm worthy of getting what I want. Right? Or there's, a other, there's another way that legalism may show itself. You live in fear that at any moment Christ will wipe your name out of the book of life because you're not good enough. You're not studying your Bible enough. You're not praying enough. Or you think God is ready to squash you like a bug because you don't perform enough. You say, that's not living. That, that is not living. That, that is existing by some spiritual formula that says, if I do X, then God must do Y. That is not living. There's another way that that kind of legalism exposes itself. It, it, it's this kind of a more of an angry Christian kind of thing where you kind of demonize everyone. Say, here's the problem with the world today. Is people aren't getting on board with what God wants. Those liberals or, their, or those conservative types or, their, or whatever they might be. You just, I wish God would deal with them. You're angry and you're grumpy all the time because you're doing it right and they're not. And then nobody wants to spend time with you because you're angry and grumpy. You get more angry, you get more grumpy. You're laughing because you probably know Christians that way. That's the legalist heart, right? That I'm worthy because I do certain things. God owes me. Another way that, that, that maybe we can have a reputation of being alive because we're doing so much but we're actually be dead inside is, is dualism. And what, what I mean by that is that you, you seal off Sunday morning from the rest of your week. Your relationship with God is a completely private thing. It's just me and God alone. I put in my 60, I put in my 75 minutes on Sunday. That's all God can ask of me. I don't want to go too overboard with this thing. Right? That your Christian faith does not spread into the other aspects of your life. Maybe there's, there's no sense of obligation or privilege to be a gospel witness to the world around you, and there's no sense of accountability, of holy living to the church you're part of. It's just you and God, and that's it. Christianity is a private thing. In fact, your private life, your private faith never connects with your public life. Your Christianity doesn't leave the four walls of the church. Friends, if you are on any of these paths, Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Because that is not the new life. That's not the abundant life I promised. Yeah, you might get all those other good things of this world thrown in, but you might not. It doesn't matter. That's not what life consists of. Christianity may help you out, may help your relationships, it may make your personal life, your private life better, but it's never just to be a private thing, it is a public thing. Friends, don't confuse the personal aspect of Christianity to mean that it's a private thing. It is a personal thing, isn't it? But it's also a public thing. And if you are kind of either the legalist, that you're, you're trying to do what you do so that you get what you want, or you're the dualist hey man, I do my Christian thing and that's it. I don't, it doesn't have to transform my business practices, my worldview, my politics, my parenting. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just right here in church. You might be on one of these two paths and Jesus says, wake up. Don't go off reputation. Be dialed into reality. And I say, well then how do we wake up? How, how do we get in touch with what's real? And the answer to that is, is really in verses three and, and, and verses two and three, 
repentance is how we get in touch with reality. Notice now, now look at verses 2 and 3. If you'd like to highlight your, your Bible, you can do this. You're going to see five action words, wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, and repent. These five action words. So, so what does it mean to repent? If repentance is the key to reality, what does it mean to repent? It's these five words. Let me just talk about them real quickly. Number one, wake up. This is what Jesus says. This is what he leads with, right? Now, I just want to be clear on this. In reality, all five of these words are describing kind of the same thing, and we can encapsulate that in the word repentance, right? But in some sense, they're, they're, they're nuanced. We want to nuance them because without any one of these elements, you don't really get all of the elements. So let's unpack them one at a time. The first one is wake up. Wake up to the reality of the danger you're in the patterns of thought, your patterns of behavior, or the motivations of your heart, or the lack thereof, right? So, so it can be an active thing, the things you are doing that are wrong, or maybe the things you're not doing that are right. Either way, wake up to the reality of the danger you are in. Let me ask, put it this way. Are you even aware that you might be unaware? Are you aware that you might be unaware? I can't tell you, so, so I was talking around a campfire this past week, me and the boys went hunting, and we're talking, and, and we're just, they're, you know, they're from different churches, friends from, one's a theologian, one's a power plant manager, and we used to be part of the same church, they say, hey, how's things going, and about pastoral ministry, I said, you know, I do a lot of counseling, and, and oh, that's right, they wanted, us, wanted me to share a little bit of what I was going to talk about, and I was saying, so often in counseling, so often in counseling, I'll say to somebody across the table, I say, surely I can't be the first person that's bringing this up to you. I mean, it is such an obvious issue in your life. I can't be the first person. And they say, well, I've never had this brought up to me. Totally unaware that they're unaware, right? How about yourself? So here's something, and my wife's here, so she let me love hearing me say this. I know I'm wrong on a lot of things, I just don't know what they are. <laughs> I know, you, you know exactly all where I'm wrong, but the point is, I know I'm wrong on some things. I know I, th I think I'm right on some things, but I also know I'm wrong on some things. I just don't know what they are yet, right? Yep. And please don't feel the, the, the need to let me know what they are. The, what I'm trying to illustrate is, I am aware that there are certain things in my life I'm just unaware and guess what? Because of that, I'm more awake than the person who doesn't think they're wrong on anything. Wake up. So, so how do we do that? Let, let me give you, so I'm going to give you five steps to repentance, now let me give you five sub-steps to waking up. Here's step number one. Talk to people who know you. Say, hey man, we're studying Revelation 3. I don't want to be the church of Sardis that has a reputation for being alive, but I'm actually dead. I don't want to be the person in Matthew 7. I don't want to be the person in 2 Timothy 3. So talk to people who know you. Okay, that's the first one. I'm going to build them. They all go together. Talk to people that know you, not just anyone, because either if they don't really know you, they'll just either, uh, they'll either kind of continue your, your false sense of security that you're okay, or they'll just tear you apart and they'll be totally wrong. You don't need either of those, right? So talk to someone who actually knows your life and knows you. Secondly, talk to people who know truth. This is as important, if not more important, than the first one. Talk to people who know truth. Truth is the metric, not necessarily the relationship you have with them, not peer status. 
If you're a young person, please tell me you have more than just young people in your life. Because if all you have is young people, you're going to get naive answers and you're just going to be foolish, right? Talk to some old people, right? Get their wisdom, get their experience, get their perspective. Now, if you're an old person, I'm not going to tell you what age that starts. Figure it out on your own. If you're an old person, please tell me you talk to more than just old people. Because they're all cynical and crusty and angry all the time, right? I mean, let's be honest. Talk to young people so you can remember the zest for life and the, the courage to do things, right? So it's not about peers necessarily. It's not about relationship. It's about do they know truth? So do they know you, right? Do they know truth? So those are the first two steps. Step number three be prepared to hear hard things. So don't say, hey, I don't want to be the Matthew 7 guy or girl. I don't want to be the, the church of Sardis. Talk to me. And then they say, okay, brother, sister, here you go. Here's a couple things. And then you start to blame, shift, justify, deny, or what? get defensive. Not helpful. Talk to people who know you. Talk to people who know truth. And then be prepared to hear something hard. Number four, then be prepared to do hard things. Change is hard. It beats at the borders of your life and your faith. It's hard. Be prepared to do hard things. And then finally, so here we are. Talk to people who know you. Talk to people who know truth. Be prepared to hear hard things. Be prepared to do hard things. And then fifth and finally on waking up, know in your bones this is good. Friends, nothing, well, Proverbs 27.6, I, I don't have a slide for that, Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There is nothing so good as when someone who loves you is willing to stick their finger in your eye to remove that speck or that log or whatever it is. No matter how much you try to do that on your own, we just, psychologically, maybe it's God's grace, we can't get ourselves to that place to really open up and be feel raw, like when someone who really loves you says, this is a problem you have and you don't see it. Let me just stick my finger here and help move it out of the way. If you've ever had that experience, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know you've been loved when someone says, you know, I really like you. I love you as a brother or sister in Christ. But here's where you really go lights out. Ugh. But how good when you start growing and you start seeing things differently, right? So that, that's how we wake up. Wake up. Admit that you're, you're, you're aware, that you're totally unaware, and then make these changes. Number two, strengthen. We see that right here in verse two. Strengthen what remains. And, and, and if you're a note taker, write down 2 Timothy chapter, chapter what, 2. Uh, verses 1 through 7, we went through this in our pastoral study of the pastoral epistles. It says, be strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives Timothy three solid examples of the athlete, the soldier, and the farmer of what it means to be strengthened. Let me give you a good illustration. And I guess what I'm trying to communicate is have a plan based on what you learned from step one. Have a plan to implement in step two. The reason that's important is, have you ever been to the gym when, and you've seen someone who has no plan to work out? Have you seen that person? Yes. What do they do? They kind of sit here, 
and then they just kind of wander around and look at something that's available and push on it. Or, and you know in about two weeks, they're done. They're never coming back. They don't have a plan, so they can't see growth. And, and it's just a bunch of, it's a pain just to do this. And they walk away. Have a plan based on step one. Step two, strengthen. Have a plan of what you learn. Strengthen yourself. Step number three, Jesus says, remember. Remember the basics. Get back to the basics of the gospel, the person of Jesus, the reality of your neediness. Get back to grace, the holiness of God, the joy of your salvation. Friends, the gospel is not just the way in to the Christian life. The gospel is the way forward in the Christian life. It gets back to the basics. My wife says, for someone who doesn't watch sports, I use a lot of sports illustrations, so here's another one. I think this is real. It might be apocryphal. Vince Lombardi, the, the Packers were losing, and it was just a horrible game. About halftime, Lombardi calls the team back in here, and he says, boys, and he picks up the pigskin. He says, this is a football. That, is, that did happen, right, babe? <laughs> Does anybody else hear that story? Okay, thank you. So, All right. The point is, we're back to the basics. Remember the basics. If you've been a Christian longer than three years, there's a good chance you've kind of assumed the basics and you've moved on, but if the basics aren't there, you're probably asleep. Let me just tell you the basics. I remember when I was a youth counselor, or excuse me, a counselor for Harvest Christian Fellowship. They trained us well to minister to people on the field. And here were the basics, and you never get past them. Basic number one, read your Bible, right? Because the, we, it's the renewing of our mind. It's eternal truth. It's the words of life, John 6. Read your Bible, okay? Renewing the mind, hearing the word of God read to you, reading it, hearing it, preaching it. Just read your Bible. Secondly, pray. Prayer is an expression of your heart. It's communing with God. It's the realization and acknowledgement of your neediness. It's fellowship with him. Prayer. Be in regular fellowship. And by, what I mean by that, because Barna Research did a, a poll, and most Christians in America think regular fellowship is one out of every five weeks. <laughs> That's not regular anything. If I only told my wife I loved her once out of every five weeks, that would not be regular, right? Regular fellowship, weekly. God built a rhythm and routine. You are with God's people weekly. And here's how this works, friends. As I'm reading God's word, I'm renewing my mind. I'm understanding God more and more. As I'm praying regularly, I'm understanding my neediness and his glory. As I'm fellowshipping with other people, I'm serving them. They're serving me. There's an outlet for my growth. I'm seeing models of Christ-likeness example. I'm having opportunities to minister and be ministered to. Regular fellowship. Five, sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel, because that is, by the way, why we are here. Did you know that? It's not to get our best life now. It's because we are a beacon of light for a lost world. We share the gospel. These are the basics. Nothing you didn't know if you've been a Christian longer than six months. What I forgot to tell you, though, is these have to be a regular part of your life. Are you regularly reading God's word? Are you regularly in prayer? Are you regularly having fellowship with the saints? Are you regularly sharing the gospel, right? Are you doing these things regularly? 
if, and by I mean, and, and I'm not going to tell you it has to be every day. I'm not going to go down that road, right? That's why I use the word regularly. You, you should be able to know what that is. Friends, can I submit to you, if any one of these are not there, part of your life in some regular way, you are asleep. And you don't know it. Because these basics, they're just the things that get us going. God's word renews my mind. My praying, my communion with him restores my soul. Being with you all is one of the greatest joys, challenges, and, and it's a delight to be. It's the greatest place to be. Sharing the gospel while scary, man, it's, it's life right there. Right? These things are so essential. If one of these is not a part of your life regularly, friend, can I submit to you, you are asleep and you don't know it. Number four, guard. You see that right there in th- verse three. Guard, or keep, the word is keep, it can be translated guard as well. Friends, the gospel requires constant vigilance all the time. Whether it's guarding it and keeping against the health and wealth gospel that we see on that network, Trinity Broadcasting Network, whether it's the soft prosperity gospel so common in our churches today, whether it's critical race theory or white nationalism or Black Lives Matter or liberal progressive or LGBTQ Christianity, The gospel requires men and women bold enough to say what it is and what it isn't. But I I want to be real careful here at the same time. Because we're generally of one mindset. I'm I'm so glad nobody cheered when I said we stand against BLM and white nationalism and all that. Because here's the thing. I have friends in that movement. I have friends that, that, uh, that, that are part of these movements. And I love them. And we have hard conversations. We disagree. They, they really disagree with me, but I love them. Friends, I hope you can realize that whatever tribe you're a part of, right, if you're being honest, the gospel of Jesus Christ has something simultaneously to affirm you and challenge you. And there are many things in these movements, these, these movements that are representing displaced or oppressed people, that as a Christian, I'm like, uh, amen, brother, sister, I'm on board with that. I affirm that. Justice, all those things. Man, you can't read the Old Testament and not see God crying out for justice. So we're on board. But let's talk about where you go lights out to the things of God. Can we do that? And friends, I want us to be just real careful that while we guard the gospel and we double down against progressive Christianity, against the LGBTQ sexuality, against white nationalism, we also have to be on guard against conservatism and conservative values because that's not the same as the gospel. Let's just be really clear on that. Please do not mistake your particular conservative view as gospel truth. It may be It may not be. I'm just saying the gospel transcends all of us. We're all wrong, right? We just don't know where we're wrong at. And let's have the humility to be willing to say that without losing the boldness to keep and guard the gospel. Make sense? Great. Fifth and last is the last word, repent, which is basically rinse and repeat steps one through four. Repentance is a change of mind that is also simultaneously a change of heart that shows itself in my life, in my actions, and my direction. In essence, this is all four of those, wake up, strengthen those things, that's the essence of repentance. And all of these work together. 
So friends, getting back to our point, repentance is what puts us in touch with reality because it makes us realize that we're not right, that we have to turn, our, turn ourselves in certain areas of our life and get back in touch with what God says in his word. Because the Bible says that we are all living in shadows and we don't even know it. Here's from Isaiah the prophet. He's talking about God's people at this point. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Friends, because of our sin, humanity is walking in shadows. We are asleep to the things of God. And it doesn't have to be I don't mean by that that you are like fists raised and open rebellion against God. You, you just might be lights out. You're not against God. You're not for him either. You're just lights out to the things of God. You're asleep. Christ says, see what is life. Wake up. Get in touch with reality. And the way you get in touch with reality is recognize you don't see that you don't see. And my word can renew your mind and restore your soul and transform your life. Wake up. C.S. Lewis uh, once again says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I can see everything else. You see, the, the, the worldview that the Scripture holds out is a comprehensive worldview. That's one of the things that's lacking in our cultural fragmentation. We have our, our, this is why I have such compassion for, for people in that world of confused sexuality, because they don't understand that human sexuality has a place. It fits in a larger whole. It just can't be taken out and done whatever you want with it. There, there's a place for that, just like there's a place for, believe it or not, our economy, how we use our finances, right? When you really think about it, we're not much different. And I'm going on a limb here, but it always amazes me that the people on the left, they believe in strict fiscal accountability and all those things, but when it comes to morality, they don't care. But the people that are conservative, they're all about moral accountability, but as far as our finances and capitalism, they don't care either. So we're both kind of on the same page, but we have different issues with one another. And the gospel transcends all of that and has ways to affirm and confront both sides. Because Christianity, because of the worldview it has, we can see everything more clearly. See, the friends, the problem with being asleep is that when you're asleep, you are controlled by dreams, not reality. In 1998, blockbuster video dreamed that they were the impregnable, impregnable force, fortress of home video rental. They were completely asleep when Netflix came online in April of 1998. About two year 2000, Blockbuster Video was worth $13 billion. Netflix was $300 million. How many of you, raise your hands, have a Blockbuster card in your purse or wallet today? <laughs> How many of you have a Netflix account? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. You guys know I bash on Netflix, and so you're like, I'm not going to raise my hand because I know he's going to know. But we all have Netflix accounts. Okay, how many of you steal other people's Netflix accounts? Raise your hand. All right. <laughs> Borders Bookstores dreamed of being the world's bookseller. 
They had massive bookstores in every city in America. You guys remember that? Who, who remembers going to Borders? Yes, I love They're like two, three-story books, bookstore. For a nerd like me, that was like the best. They were completely asleep when Amazon, the online bookseller, by the way, that's what they started with, came online in July of 1995. Who bought a book from Borders this year? Raise your hand. Yeah, you're lying because they don't exist anywhere. Well, Walden Books, maybe. Who bought a book from Amazon this year? Raise your hand. The problem with being asleep is our dreams control us and not reality. Friends, repentance is the key to waking up out of our dream state and to be in touch with reality because repentance puts us in touch with God and only He can help us see the way things are. Only God can help us see this world in all its brokenness in all its beauty. And finally, verse 5 and 6 here. The joys, once we're in touch with reality. Oh, I'm late. Sorry, I asked for a few more minutes. Uh, the, the joy of reality. The Lord concludes this letter like he does all the letters with promises to those who overcome. And notice what are the promises to those that overcome here. They're clothed in white garments, right? They will never have their names taken from the book of life, and their name will be confessed before the Father. It's the total opposite of Matthew 7 where he denies them. Now the Lord says, I will confess your name. And the white garments, I hope that that's recognizable because it was really recognizable to them. It was that beautiful symbol of, 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 of celebration and supremacy. It was the white toga of the Roman citizen that they would all wear. Oh, and I have this great quote. Let me see if I can, uh, I can't do that. Okay, so Jesus just says, look, it's, it's at the end of the day for the one who overcomes, it's not just your reputation that's going to be applauded, you're going to be applauded. And your name will never be forgotten. In fact, it's going to be forever, forever perpetuated in the book of life. And you won't be denied. You actually will be confessed. All these have to do with their image, their idea of who they are. And Jesus says, in me, you will have it all. You don't have to keep chasing that receding horizon and trying to manage an image that just exhausts you because there will be an image and a name and a reputation given to you that's glorious. They say that uh, reputation is everything, but we know that, that that's not true. Reality is everything, and the reality of the fact is we all need something much better than a good name and a good reputation and a good image. Right? We need a Savior who knows that though we have none of these, he's willing to give us all of these. And that's what he's done. This is exactly what the gospel promises every one of us. It's not about us being, being how good we might seem, but how good he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just what Sardis, the church, was going through. It, 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 it kind of maps on to our time and place where our image, our reputation becomes more important than who we actually are. And Father, we don't, we don't want to settle for just the reputation of being alive. We actually want to be alive. Help us to wake up then. Help us to repent. Help us to be in touch with the real joys of the real reality you offer those who overcome. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.